You're tuned in to the A-Minder podcast, where we summarize the latest research on Alzheimer's disease for you every month. Today, we'll be talking about the latest work on cognitive and behavioral changes in this disease, including papers on executive functioning, social impairments, motor coordination, and more. Don't go away. I'll be right back with the science. Welcome to A-Minder a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you, so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. I'm your host for today, Ellen Kosh, and it's officially fall right now, but today I'll be telling you about some of the last papers from the summer of 2021. As I'm covering all the papers that we sorted into cognitive and behavioral changes in AD from August of this year. By the way, you'll hear me call Alzheimer's disease AD for the rest of this episode, and I'll refer to mild cognitive impairment as MCI. Anything else that I abbreviate will be defined for you along the way. We have a pretty big episode with 18 papers to get through today. In the first half, we'll talk all about cognition with papers divided into the topics of cognitive profiles, executive functions, exercise, and cognition. Then after a short break, I'll be back to tell you about psychiatric and social impairments, motor coordination, and sleep and circadian rhythms. And if you just want to jump to any of these sections, you can find the timestamps for them in the show notes as well. Quite the variety today, which is something that I love about this episode every month. There are people out there doing research to understand the various ways that AD can affect patients, and hopefully we can find new ways to help individuals suffering from this disease thanks to this research. A few quick announcements. We're very thankful here at Aminder to our sponsor, the Canadian Consortium of Neurodegeneration and, Neurodegeneration and Aging, or CCNA, who are helping to support us this year. This support will help us to pay for things like podcast platforms, equipment, conference fees, and more. You'll hear more about them and what they do in upcoming episodes, so stay tuned. And you should hear about them during our break in today's episode as well. We're all about transparency here at Aminder, so I just want to make it clear as well that our sponsors don't affect the content we curate, meaning papers that we cover or other important things like that are not affected by the sponsorship we receive. On that note, I want to remind you that here at Aminder, our goal is to provide you with an unbiased summary of the research that's come out every month. We don't go into detail checking every paper for scientific rigor, accuracy, um, sound methodology, etc., but instead we just report on what the authors state in their abstract. So I highly recommend you check out the full papers before taking anything stated today as fact. You can find all the papers in our numbered bibliography, which accompanies the episode, and you can find the link to that and all of our bibliographies in the show notes. Note that we even have bibliographies for topics that we don't cover in full episodes, so I I recommend checking those out too. We've done all the heavy lifting for you and sorted hundreds of papers every month into topics so that you can save time, and our bibliographies are definitely a resource that you don't want to miss. You can also find out this link to the bibliographies on our website, aminder.com. And by the way, if you're enjoying the podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the podcast and are able to leave a review. You can also subscribe so that you won't miss a new episode when it comes out. Currently, we're releasing episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. 
Okay, that was a lot to say. Now let's get started on the science. First, I'll tell you about five papers that look at understanding the cognitive profile of Alzheimer's disease, and in some cases, how cognitive changes relate to the brain. We'll start with the paper that used the network analysis technique to study the differences in neuropsychological functioning between those with dementia and cognitively healthy individuals. This one's arriving from the journal Neuropsychology, Development, and Cognition, Section B, from first and last authors Navado and Maestu. They're located in Madrid, Spain, and the title of paper number one of the episode is Neuropsychological Networks in Cognitively Healthy Older Adults and Dementia Patients. These authors employed network analysis to study neuropsychological functioning in people with dementia. This consisted of creating a network of test scores from cognitively healthy MCI and dementia patients to determine the relationship between different cognitive functions and to see if this is affected in the dementia patients. They had a lot of data from over 7,000 healthy controls, almost 6,000 with MCI, and about 2,000 dementia patients. All the data was from the National Alzheimer's Coordinating Center. The results revealed executive function to be the central cognitive function, and language, attention, and memory were also important, more central functions. My understanding is that the most central nodes are the ones that are the most important or have the most influence of all the different factors looked at. The trail-making test B, a cognitive flexibility assessment, was the most central test in their network analysis. The interesting thing that they found was that their network measures were similar between healthy controls, MCI, and dementia patients, meaning the ranking of cognitive functions seems to still be normal in dementia patients. The authors think of this study as a good proof of principle that this type of network analysis could become useful in analyzing data um, from cognitive testing. To be frank, network analysis is a bit out of my personal scope of knowledge, so please check out the paper for the full details on their findings. Let's jump to our second paper, which did a large comparison of all of the different cognitive and psychiatric symptoms present in people who were amyloid beta positive. Some of these individuals had clinical dementia, whereas others had MCI or a subjective cognitive decline. The difference between these two is that MCI is diagnosed based on objective cognitive testing, whereas subjective cognitive decline is exactly what it sounds like, a self-reported cognitive decline from the individual. I'll abbreviate this as SCD from now on. Paper number two is titled Neuropsychiatric and Cognitive Symptoms Across the Alzheimer's Disease Clinical Spectrum, Cross-Sectional and Longitudinal Associations. It's published in Neurology by first author Eichel Boom and last author Patma, and they're associated with the University Medical Center in Rotterdam, Netherlands. The authors were able to include data from over 1,500 amyloid-positive participants from the Amsterdam Dementia Cohort for this study. Most of these had Alzheimer's dementia, while a smaller number had MCI or SCD. They looked at various neuropsychiatric symptom measures and cognitive test scores at baseline, and for some patients at follow-up, which this follow-up averaged at about 1.8 years following baseline measures. Neuropsychiatric symptoms were present in all of the groups, with a lot of variability between individuals on how this changed over time. On the other hand, cognition showed a gradual decline over time, like you'd expect with a progressive disease. The authors also describe other results about relationships between various measures, which you can read up all about in the full paper if you're so inclined. The take-home message that the researchers highlight is that 
In Alzheimer's disease, the progression of neuropsychiatric and cognitive symptoms show key differences. The next paper in our episode complements the two we just covered. In this one, the researchers look at the variability and structure of cognitive function in AD individuals. Here, the researchers were interested in taking a closer look at the heterogeneity in cognitive symptoms in AD with the hope that this would one day lead to establishing cognitive subgroups that could be used in precision medicine in the future. This one is coming at you from first and last authors Zangrossi and Mondini at the University of Padua, Italy. Published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease, we have paper number three, Heterogeneity and Factorial Structure in Alzheimer's Disease, a Cognitive Perspective. This study used a technique called factor mixture analysis to look at the structure of cognitive heterogeneity and to identify core features that could be used to define cognitive subtypes in AD. I'm going to skip over the technical details of their analysis and results, so please check out the paper for all of that info. Altogether, they had data from 230 AD patients, and their analysis identified four groups that they called typical AD, physiospatial AD, mild AD, and non-amnestic AD. The mild and typical groups are pretty self-explanatory, but interestingly, the visuospatial AD patients mainly suffered from visuospatial impairments, and the non-amnestic AD patients were defined by having language deficits. I think this finding is really cool and interesting because studies of visuospatial and language ability are common in AD too, and have come up many times in past episodes if you listened, so they're definitely not a rare symptom in Alzheimer's disease. They may even be a subtype of this disease, as the study suggests. Our next publication looks at specific cognitive processes involved in future thinking in patients with AD. The first author of this one is Strickwerda Brown, and the last author is Irish. That's their last name, not their ethnicity. And they're affiliated with the University of Sydney, Australia, and the ARC Center of Excellence in Cognitive and Its Disorders in Sydney. Paper number four is titled, Examining the Episodic Semantic Interaction During Future Thinking, a Reanalysis of External Details, and it's published in Memory and Cognition. These authors were interested in the external components of autobiographical narratives, and external components are also called semantic components, and these are specific to an individual's life story, but not necessarily as relevant to the memory itself. In contrast, internal components would be the episodic details of the memory, which is what traditional analyses of autobiographical constructs have focused on. The researchers here used a new NEXT scoring system to look at the external details of autobiographical constructs in a small group of 11 AD patients and 13 patients with semantic dementia. They report that the AD patients produced more specific episode external details compared with controls, and that this related to increased gray matter in the medial and lateral frontal regions of the brain. They don't mention what their control group was or much detail on their methodology in the abstract, so please consult the paper itself for this information. The authors suggest that this research can help in characterizing how episodic and semantic details are affected in neurodegenerative disease. The last paper in our cognitive profile section looks at neuroimaging in patients with with subjective cognitive decline, or SCD. Let's get into paper number five, titled The Interplay Between Gray Matter and White Matter, Neurodegeneration in Subjective Cognitive Decline. First author is Cedris, last author Ferreira, 
and it's published in Aging. And the authors are affiliated with the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, uh, Stockholm University in Sweden, as well as the Mayo Clinic in the U.S. This group was curious how gray matter and white matter in the brain correlate with subjective cognitive decline. They collected data from uh, 225 individuals from the community, including 123 with SCD, and the rest didn't have any cognitive complaints. Those with more subjective complaints had a lower hippocampal volume, thinning of several cortical regions and the insula, and higher mean diffusity of white matter. Their analysis found that the cortical thinning was strongly related to subjective complaints. This is pretty interesting considering from my understanding, these were community dwelling individuals that hadn't been diagnosed with anything prior to this study. The researchers conclude that gray matter and white matter are affected in subjective cognitive decline, and some of the areas they discovered to be affected are not commonly affected in AD. So they think that this there could be various different brain pathologies represented in their participants. From here, we'll move on to our next section, which covers papers about executive function in Alzheimer's disease. Your executive functions include your ability to plan, focus, think flexibly, self-monitor and control your impulses and emotions, and much more. And as you can imagine, these abilities are often affected in AD. The next paper looks at the role of gender in the in performance on executive function tasks in MCI and AD, which sadly isn't studied enough. And generally, gender differences have been overlooked in neuroscience research, even though there is tremendous evidence indicating neurological differences between male and female brains in health and in disease. The sixth paper of the episode comes from authors Elosua, Ciudad, and Contreras from an institute in Madrid, Spain. This one is published in Applied Neuropsychology Adult, and the title is Executive Function Tasks in Patients with Mild Cognitive Impairment and Alzheimer's Disease, Effects of Decline and Gender. The study involved a nice even number of participants, 30 AD patients, 30 MCI, 30 healthy controls, and an even split between men and women. They looked at the clock drawing test, phonetic fluency, and trail making tests, and each of these tests assessed different executive functions. Interestingly, there were no significant effects of gender in the MCI and control groups. However, women performed better than men in the AD group. The authors speculate that sociocultural and generational context could be playing a role in this difference seen in men versus women. I think this is an interesting idea, and I hope that in the future we have more larger-scale studies looking at sex differences in Alzheimer's disease. Moving along, we have paper number seven of the episode, where the researchers want to see how executive functioning, brain anatomy, and amyloid beta levels were affected in the children of people with Alzheimer's disease. This paper is titled, Amyloid and Anatomical Correlates of Executive Functioning in Middle-Aged Offspring of Patients with Late-Onset Alzheimer's Disease. This comes from authors, first author Duarte Abrita from Buenos Aires, Argentina, and Gwyn Joan, who is affiliated with University uh, in Oklahoma, United States. And this is published in the journal Psychiatric Research in Neuroimaging. We know that there are genetic factors that influence AD pathology, and these researchers wanted to look at cognition and brain imaging in the offspring of parents with late-onset Alzheimer's disease. 30 middle-aged participants who had a parent with AD and 30 controls with no family history of AD took part in this study. 
Offspring of late-onset AD patients showed correlations between left lateral orbitofrontal cortex thickness and design fluency, as determined by cognitive testing. The authors also report a positive correlation between the Stroop color and word test and the thickness of the right rostral midfrontal cortex. Whew, these imaging papers are often a mouthful. Um, and one more result here, a negative correlation was found between the trails-making test and the left medial orbitofrontal thickness. Also, amyloid beta deposition in the right precuneus correlated with total time in the Tower of London test. They didn't find any of these correlations in the control group. So it seems that there are some subtle changes in the brain that might contribute to declines in executive function at early stages of AD. For paper number eight, let's talk about scams. Probably not something you like talking about, but I'm sure you've come across internet or phone call scams, or perhaps you've been a victim to them or know somebody who has. It's a huge problem, and elderly individuals and those with dementia are often targeted in these types of scams. How does brain pathology relate to the likelihood of falling victim to one of these scams? This paper published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease looks at just that. It's from first author Capacity and last author Boyle, out of Rush University Medical Center, Chicago. The title is Association of Amyloid Beta Pathology with Decision-Making and Scam Susceptibility. The study used data from almost 200 deceased individuals who were not ever diagnosed with clinical dementia and who had been doing annual clinical evaluations and assessments of healthcare, financial decision-making, and scam susceptibility. These authors looked at amyloid beta, tau, Lewy body, and TDP43 pathology post-mortem. Using a linear regression model analysis, amyloid beta pathology was correlated with poor decision-making and increased scam susceptibility. TDP43 was also associated with scam susceptibility. Um, I think, again, that this is a very interesting study, especially considering that these patients didn't have clinical dementia. These results suggest that scam susceptibility could be one of the earliest behavioral signs of AD pathology in the brain. Okay, now we're moving on to a bit of a different topic with this next paper. In this study, they looked at the effect of an exercise hormone on cognition in rodents. Potentially, exercise and the hormone it, hormones that it produces could be a good intervention strategy to improve cognition, and the research backs this up. Exercise is also an antidepressant, and as you'll hear all about in the second half of this episode, depression is also a psychiatric symptom that AD patients often suffer from. Exercise is just all around good for you. Even though if you're like me, exercise, particularly dreaded cardio exercise, can feel like pure tor torture. That's why I prefer doing yoga and going on walks. Anyways, my personal opinions aside, let's get into paper number nine of the episode. This is published in Nature Metabolism. And the title is, Exercise Hormone Irisin is a Critical Regulator of Cognitive Function. First author is Islam from the Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. And last, last author is Ran, who's also affiliated there. The researchers of the study focused on the exercise-induced membrane protein irisin, which is the cleaved and circulating form of the protein FNDC5. This protein is secreted by muscles during exercise, and research has suggested that it might be involved in things like weight loss and thermal regulation. In this study, they used genetic knockout mice for the FNDC5 slash irisin protein, 
and report that these mice have impaired pattern separation and they have abnormal adult-born neurons in the dentate gyrus. The authors claim that delivering irisin into the dentate gyrus rescued pattern separation deficits. They also mentioned that delivering irisin to the liver via anadena-associated virus can increase central irisin and rescue cognitive and neuropathological deficits in an AD mouse model. It's not clear from the abstract what measures they looked at and what AD mouse model was used, so you'll need to check out the paper to get the full scoop. All in all, there seems to be some potential here for irisin to be used as a cognitive enhancer, so I think further research into this topic would definitely be beneficial to AD patients. If you're interested in the effects of exercise as an intervention in AD, or if you're interested in other non-pharmacological interventions, check out Nyla's episode on prevention and intervention strategies in AD, as well as her, her risk factors episodes. She often covers papers on exercise as a way to mitigate symptoms of AD. Okay, it's time for a quick break before I come back to tell you all about the research on psychiatric symptoms, motor coordination, and sleep. Nearly 1 million older Canadians live with a form of dementia. This number is expected to double within 10 years, and sadly no solutions exist yet to dramatically reduce these numbers. It has to stop. Research can help solve this problem. We are 350 researchers fully dedicated towards preventing and finding a cure to dementia, and to improve care to those living with dementia. We are the Canadian Consortium on Neurodegeneration in Aging. The solution to dementia could be closer than you think. So we're moving on now to our section on psychiatric and social symptoms in Alzheimer's disease. The first paper in this section, and paper number 10 of the episode, is a good segue because it looks at the relationship between objective memory and depressive symptoms in people with subjective cognitive decline. Published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease, this paper is by first and last authors Hill and Mogul from Pennsylvania State University. It's called Longitudinal Relationships Between Subjective Cognitive Decline and Objective Memory, Depressive Symptoms Mediate Between-Person Associations. So in this study, Hill and colleagues looked into how depressive symptoms mediate memory problems in individuals suffering from SCD, or Subjective Cognitive Decline. They wanted to see if this symptom was associated with cognitive differences between individuals as well as within the same individual over time. Using multi-level structural equation modeling, they analyzed data from various data sets, which range from thousands to tens of thousands of participants. They report that older individuals with SCD had lower objective memory scores, and depressive symptoms were partly responsible for this relationship. But in three of the four data sets they studied, depressive symptoms did not mediate the relationship between subjective cognitive decline reports and objective memory decline. So the authors conclude that depressive symptoms were partly responsible for the relationship between subjective and objective memory decline, and that older adults with SCD and depression may be especially vulnerable to further cognitive decline. Let's move on to the 11th paper of today's episode. The next two papers look at possible neuropathological mechanisms that may contribute to depressive symptoms in AD adults, 
with this first one investigating amyloid beta burden. This one is coming from various institutions in France by first author Conagero and last author Gabel, published in the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. It's entitled Amyloid Burden and Depressive Symptom Trajectories in Older Adults at Risk of Developing Cognitive Decline. The participants for this study were from the French multi-domain Alzheimer Preventative Trial. They had all done PET amyloid imaging, had memory complaints and or daily living or gait limitations to qualify for this study. The researchers looked at amyloid levels in six regions of the brain that have been implicated in AD dementia. Depressive symptoms were also assessed using the geriatric depression scale at baseline and at four follow-up time points for three years. Using principal component analysis and linear mixed multivariate models, the authors found that global amyloid load was not associated with the total score on the depression scale, but it was related to impaired self-esteem during follow-up. And this was after adjusting for factors like age, sex, education, drug intake, dementia, and mini-mental-state exam score. Check out the paper for all the details, but I think it's fascinating that these authors were able to correlate amyloid beta levels with such a specific dimension of the depression scale. Paper 12 looks instead at individuals that do not have elevated cortical amyloid, but do have depression, and they use imaging as well to look at the contributors to depression in late life. By the way, if you're interested in all these imaging papers, we have lots of bibliographies available covering the latest AD imaging papers that have come out for the past few months. You can find the link to all our bibliographies in the show notes or on our website. This paper is published in Scientific Reports by first author Takamiya and last author Emsel, and they're affiliated with institutions in Leuven, Belgium, and Tokyo, Japan. The title is Lower Regional Gray Matter Volume in the Absence of Higher Cortical Amyloid Burden in Late Life Depression. Like the last paper, the study had patients undergo amyloid PET imaging, and they also had a structural MRI scan to look at gray matter volume. There were 100 subjects total, with about half of them having depression, and all of them were on average in their early to mid-70s. The researchers found no differences in amyloid load between the depressed and non-depressed groups, but what they did find was that depressed individuals had a significantly lower gray matter volume in the left temporal and parietal regions of the brain. However, the gray matter volume loss in the left temporal region was associated with episodic memory dysfunction, but not with depression. And interestingly, no relationship was found with the regional gray matter volume loss and amyloid deposition. So the authors conclude that non-amyloid pathology could be behind the lowered gray matter volume in the depressed individuals. I think future research would be useful in determining what mechanisms are contributing to this gray matter volume loss in the depressed adults. Interesting stuff. The next paper follows a similar vein, looking at brain morphology correlated with depression and a number of other psychiatric symptoms. It's published in the journal International Psychogeriatry by first and last authors Siafarikas and Westly, coming out of various institutions in Norway. The title of today's 13th paper is Neuropsychiatric Symptoms and Brain Morphology in Patients with Mild Cognitive Impairment and Alzheimer's Disease with Dementia. As you may have expected, based on where the authors are from, this study was done in Norway, 
About 100 MCI and 130 AD patients participated, participated in this study and underwent a neuropsychiatric inventory questionnaire and MRI. With principal component analysis, the authors found that elation, psychosis, depression, and motor behaviors were key features from the neuropsychiatric inventory. Elation is defined as a state of exaggerated happiness and exhilaration, which is quite the opposite of depression. And this factor was positively correlated with right caudal anterior cingulate cortex thickness across all of the groups. The authors also report that psychosis and depression were associated with the volume of different cortical areas, depending on the diagnosis of MCI versus AD. There was a lot to unpack in this abstract, so definitely check out the paper for the full story. Now we'll move on to a bit of a different topic, though it's related to psychiatric symptoms, and that is social dysfunction. The next paper looks at social dysfunction and the default mode network, which consists of the cortical regions, medial prefrontal cortex, posterior cingulate, and the angular gyrus. This is the area of the brain that's been found to be active when a person is at rest, like if they're daydreaming or just thinking, planning, mind-wandering, etc. Interestingly, I used to write a blog all about research on neuroscience and mindfulness, and there's been a few studies that have shown that meditation actually decreases activity of the default mode network. And if you're interested, some of that research comes from Sarah Lazar out of Harvard. But back to the topic at hand, paper number 14 of the episode is called Social Dysfunction is Transdiagnostically Associated with Default Mode Network Disconnectivity in Schizophrenia and Alzheimer's Disease. It's published in the World Journal of Biological Psychiatry, and its first author is Saris. Last author is Penix from uh, the Netherlands, um, and these all the authors are also part of the PRISM Consortium. So in addition to what I mentioned in my little prelude about the default mode network, this brain network is also known to be affected in psychopathology and social disorders. I'll be calling the default mode network the DMN from this point forward. The researchers of this study looked across disorders at how social dysfunction affects the DMN's functional connectivity. In this study, resting fMRI data was used from individuals with schizophrenia, Alzheimer's disease, and healthy controls, each group having 50, about 50 participants. They also completed a social functioning scale and the Dijon-Gierveld loneliness scale. These are both self-reporting scales, by the way. The authors state that both of these scales were associated with lower connectional integrity of the DMN, particularly in the rostromedial prefrontal DMN. Combining the effects of both the social and loneliness scales, they saw a large effect on rostromedial and dorsomedial prefrontal cortex connectivity. The authors conclude that it seems that social dysfunction is associated with specific changes to DMN connectivity across the disorders of AD and schizophrenia. The last two papers of this section are switching gears now to animal models, investigating psychiatric disturbances and stress associated with AD pathology in mice. This is my wheelhouse right now, as my PhD is all about mouse behavior and neural imaging in neurodegenerative models. We'll start with the 15th paper of the show, published by Santana Santana, Verascus, and Jimenez Lord of the Universita uh, Universitat Autonoma de Barcelona, Spain. The title is Sex-Dependent Signatures, Timeframes, and Longitudinal Fine-Tuning of the Marble Burying Test in Normal and AD Pathological Aging Mice. 
and it's published in the journal Biomedicines. These authors used new, state-of-the-art behavior analysis techniques to look at the classic marble burying test in the 3XTG and wild-type mice. This is a test for compulsive or anxiety-like behaviors in rodents. These mice were male and female and 12 months of age at the beginning of the study. The research group also tested different experimental designs, including repeated test schedules and longitudinal designs for four months to look at changes with aging and disease progression. They wanted to determine the best testing parameters to see genotype and sex differences with this task. The authors report that the marble burying test was sensitive to the AD phenotype, more so in males than females, and they describe many other results about fine-tuning this test and results in males versus females that you can read all about in the paper itself. Finally, they mention that they think, based on their results, that the burying behavior assessed with this task is representing stereotyped-like behavior rather than anxiety-like behavior for the AD mice. Clement and Asuni bring you paper number 16 of the episode, from institutions in Denmark. This one is published in the journal Genes, Brain, and Behavior, and it looks into how chronic stress affects neuropsychiatric-like symptoms in a mouse model of AD. The title is Chronic Stress Induces NPD-Like Behavior in APPPS1 and Wild-Type Mice with Subtle Differences in Gene Expression. These researchers built on research implicating the HPA axis, which stands for the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, in psychiatric symptoms and believe that this could be behind some of the symptoms in AD patients. They report that in APPPS1 AD mice, chronic stress caused anxiety-like behavior and affected diurnal locomotor activity. The authors don't explain in the abstract how this chronic stress was induced, So that would be important to know, as there are many types of stress that can be used in these types of experiments. What they do report is that the HPA axis activity was amplified in the stressed mice, and this stayed high in wild-type mice for three weeks. In both the AD and the wild-type, circadian rhythm clock gene expression was disturbed, but the two groups had different responses in the expression of serotonergic and inflammatory genes. Though the authors don't describe these responses in the abstract. Some interesting experiments here, but make sure you check out the whole paper to get all the important details. We're nearing the end with two papers left. The first one on motor coordination and balance in AD patients. Tueth, Earhart, and Rawson bring you this paper, published in the journal Somatosensory and Motor Research. The authors are affiliated with Washington University in St. Louis School of Medicine. Paper number 17 is... Association between falls in Alzheimer's disease and scores on the balance evaluation systems test, best test, and mini best test. Because falls are common in people with Alzheimer's, this group wanted to test out the use of a few common balance tests in people with mild AD dementia. They used the balance evaluation system test, abbreviated as best test, which is definitely a clever name. And they also looked at the mini best test and subsections of the best test. The participants took these tests at baseline, as well as other questionnaires, and they tracked their falls for 12 months. They don't mention the number of participants in the study, and it's unclear if there was a control group. But they divided the participants into fallers versus non-fallers, and they found that the scores were consistently lower in the best test for the fallers. So, this means that false status was related to balance deficits that could be identified using the BEST test, 
which included uh, deficits in moving the body out of the base of support, changing your center of mass, and reacting to perturbations. It seems like this is a good way to test whether 80 individuals are at risk of falling, and the author suggests that future studies could help in developing physical therapy protocols to reduce the risk of falling. <sighs> We've made it to the end with one paper on sleep and circadian rhythms, which I always love to leave to the end of the episode. Often we have more papers on this topic, but today we just have one. This paper looks at levels of melatonin, the well-known hormone involved in controlling the sleep-wake cycle, in the cerebrospinal fluid of Alzheimer's disease patients. And did you know that we have whole bibliographies on fluid biomarkers in the blood and in the cerebrospinal fluid in AD? They're called fluid biomarkers, and you can find these with all the rest of our bibliographies in the link in the show notes. Let's get into paper number 18, which is titled, Serum Daylight Daytime Melatonin Levels Reflect Cerebrospinal Fluid Melatonin Levels in Alzheimer's Disease, but are not correlated with cognitive decline. It's in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease by first author Noos and last author Engelborg, and they are affiliated with institutions across Belgium. If you've listened to this episode in previous months, you've heard me talk about how sleep and melatonin signaling are altered in AD patients. If you haven't listened before and you're interested in this topic, as I mentioned earlier, we usually cover more sleep papers in this episode, so feel free to go back and tune into this from previous months. In the current study, the authors wanted to see if there was a relationship between melatonin levels in the cerebrospinal fluid, which I'll be calling the CSF from now on, with the melatonin levels in the serum of AD patients. And if you're not familiar, serum is a component extracted from the blood plasma with all the clotting factors removed. The researchers were also interested in how daytime levels of melatonin were affected in AD, and if there's a relationship between cognitive decline and melatonin. Unfortunately, they don't mention the number of participants in the study, but they use data from two existing cohorts where CSF and, ser and serum samples were available, and the results from neuropsychological testing as well. In AD patients, CSF and serum melatonin levels were positively correlated. The rest of their results were negative, meaning AD patients did not have any differences in daytime melatonin levels, and they didn't see any correlations between daytime melatonin and cognitive testing results. Importantly, taking CSF samples is much more invasive than taking a simple blood test, so this study suggests that we can be confident in using serum as a readout of brain melatonin levels. And that's the end of the episode for today. I hope you enjoyed, and remember that you can find all the papers talked about today in our bibliography, which I feel like I mentioned like 10 times in today's episode. Check the show notes or our website, aminder.com, a-M-I-N-D-R.com to find the link for that. We have episodes coming out every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for the next couple of weeks for our August series. If you like today's topic, we'll have an episode on clinical markers of AD coming out soon, which you may be interested in. This episode is hosted by Sarah, and it covers papers on cognitive and other behavioral and clinical indicators of AD, and how they can help us to better detect and diagnose this disease. We cover a variety of topics here at Aminder, and anything we don't cover in full episodes, each month we'll still get a bibliography. If you're enjoying the show, we'd love it if you could leave us a review. You might even hear us read it on the show in the future. You can review us on Apple Podcasts or whatever website that you listen to the show. 
um, on and are able to leave reviews. And if you're not able to leave reviews on the app you're using, please leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. We'd really appreciate it and it will help us to reach more listeners that could benefit from the show. And you can also find us on social media and connect with us there. We're very responsive to messages and would love to hear from you or connect with you. Um, our social medias are on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube. And I would like to give a really big thank you to our team of volunteers for putting together this episode of Aminder. That includes our sorting team for sorting all of the abstracts this month into these bite-sized topics. Thank you to Anisha Kamesh for reviewing my script and giving me some great feedback, Sarah Luedi for reviewing my audio, and for making the bibliography and word cloud, or sorry, Sarah made the bibliography and Jacques Ferreira made the word cloud, the, ugh, Sarah made the word cloud and Jacques Ferreira uh, made the bibliography. And thank you to our sponsor again, the Canadian Consortium of Neurodegeneration and Aging. Anusha Kamesh also makes the music for our show. You can find her on YouTube under AK Music or SoundCloud using her name. And finally, I'm thanking you for listening to this episode. You listeners are what makes our show continue. We hope you found this podcast useful and accessible and look forward to you joining us again soon. Goodbye.